Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 220, Puritans in Paradise. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about a group of Christian missionaries dispatched from Boston in the early 1820s. They left their homes, and they were prepared to never return. They didn't know much about the land they were going to settle in or the people they were trying to convert, but what little they had heard was frightening. The missionaries came from a church that was directly descended from the harsh Christianity of the Puritans, and they were on their way to a land where the people worshipped a pantheon of many gods. From a society where both men and women were basically always covered from neck to ankles, they were going to a land where the people wore tattoos and very little else. They'd heard rumors of graven idols and human sacrifice, and believed they were on their way to do battle with the devil himself. Many of them believed that they were being sent into the gates of hell, but they were on their way to heaven on earth itself, the kingdom of Hawaii. But before we talk about Boston's missionaries to the gates of hell, I just want to pause and thank everyone who helps make up history. For over four years now, we've put out regular podcast episodes. At first, it was a few minutes each week, and for the past year, it's been a few more minutes than that every two weeks. That adds up to a pretty significant amount of audio that we have to put somewhere. At the same time, we've seen our listenership grow to almost 3,000 a week, almost all of whom download the file in the first day or two it's out. Without specialized media hosting, that could mean significant bandwidth charges. Add to that the cost of hosting a website, mastering audio files, and generating transcripts, and this free podcast suddenly takes real money to produce. That's why I'm so grateful to the listeners who make the choice to sponsor Hub History on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, they offset the cost of producing the show and make it possible for us to keep going. If you'd like to join them, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In 2016, my wife and co-host Emerita Nikki took an anniversary trip to Maui. It seemed like everywhere we went, we bumped into a tiny rustic church in a breathtaking Hawaiian landscape. First, we stumbled across the Keawala'i Church on our way to snorkel at a place called McKenna Landing. It had walls made of coral blocks that looked like limestone, and shingles on the eaves, roof, and slim steeple that looked like cedar, but were probably some more tropical wood. It was nestled between coconut palms in a brilliant green lawn, with a handful of headstones in the corner of the churchyard overlooking a pocket beach. A few days later, all the way on the other side of the island, we were driving down a very narrow, very rough dirt road. The kind where you have to pull off to one side when a car comes in the other direction, and where you have to beep the horn before going around a tight turn. Down a long lane off that winding dirt road was Huyaloha Church, which looked like it was taken out of the same kit as the Keawala'i Church. Same proportions, same slim steeple, but this one had whitewashed walls and dark-stained planks cladding the eaves and steeple. It was on a narrow lava peninsula with surf breaking right outside the back windows. There was a cluster of palms and hardwoods around the church building with a low slope leading down to the rocky beach below. 
On the day we visited, there were snorkelers spearfishing in the rough surf behind the church. On the very last day of our trip, I went out for a run an hour or two before the sun came up and ran past a small, stick-built church across the street from a waterfront park. Later that day, I passed another church on the northern end of the island that seemed to be the exact same model, but more brightly colored. It was in a narrow valley above a rocky coast with dark green walls, white trim, and a bright red roof. That roof was steeply pitched, and it had a tiny porch with a little roof with the same pitch, and again a low steeple. A few hours later still, I passed a third church with the same basic design. This one painted a bright green and looking across a dune at the beach. That finally made me curious enough to pay attention, and I realized that not only those three identical churches, which I'll mispronounce as the Kahaka Kuloa, Keolaha'u, and Lahuiokalani Ka'anapali churches, but also the Huialoha and Keawalai and nearly every other church I'd seen on the island, was a congregational church. I knew that the Congregationalists and the Unitarians were the direct descendants of New England Puritanism, but I couldn't quite figure out how they came to be so ubiquitous on Maui. I put the question away for later, and when I dug into it, it turned out that the traditional Hawaiian religion had been supplanted by Congregationalist churches started by missionaries from Park Street Church beginning in 1819. The story begins when British Captain James Cook went searching for a northwest passage around the North American continent. He stopped briefly at a remote Pacific archipelago on his way to North America, then stopped again on his way back to trade. He named the chain the Sandwich Islands, after the Earl of Sandwich, although the residents of the island he stopped at preferred the name Hawaii. Before long, that entire chain would be united into a new Kingdom of Hawaii. When Cook visited Hawaii in 1778 and died there in 1779, a local priest and chieftain named Kamehameha was beginning a military and diplomatic campaign to unite all the neighboring islands under his rule. First, he defeated the other chieftains on the island of Hawaii, and then as more European and American ships visited the island chain, he traded sandalwood and other natural resources for cannons and gunpowder and hired British military advisors. In 1795, he launched an army of 10,000 warriors and over 900 canoes against the neighboring island of Maui, which had fought against Hawaii for generations. His forces quickly defeated Maui, then leapfrogged to Molokai, before moving on and subduing the island of Oahu before the end of the year. For the next several years, Kamehameha the Great, known later as Kamehameha I, the founder of the House of Kamehameha, was occupied by establishing a set of laws, negotiating to bring the island of Kauai under his rule, and putting down rebellions around the islands he'd already conquered. One of those rebellions took place in 1896 in the Hilo Valley on Kamehameha's home island of Hawaii, today one of the two major cities on what's known as the Big Island. A local chief named Namakeha formed an alliance with other mid-level leaders who resented Kamehameha's dominance and tried to establish a local fiefdom independent of the king's influence. The experiment was short-lived. The king's warriors quickly routed the rebels and implemented a form of collective punishment against the warriors who supported the rebel cause. Villages emptied as entire families fled into the hills to try to avoid being put under the knife, 
but many were unsuccessful. An independent researcher of Hawaiian history describes how one family took refuge in a cave for days before finally being discovered by Kamehameha's forces. A survivor, a son, Opukahaia, was at the age of about ten. Both his parents were slain before his eyes. The only surviving member of the family besides himself was an infant brother he hoped to save from the fate of his parents, and carried him on his back and fled from the enemy. But he was pursued, and his little brother, while on his back, was killed by a spear from the enemy. Taken prisoner because he was not young enough to give them trouble, nor old enough to excite their fears, Opukahaia was not killed. Instead, Opukahaia was sent to live with an uncle, who began training the boy to follow in his footsteps as a priest in the Hawaiian animist religion. He practiced complex prayers and rituals, which he would repeat daily at the heiau, or temple, that was maintained by his uncle. However, Opokahaia would not grow up to be a Hawaiian priest. He missed his parents, and as an orphan, he had very little status in Hawaiian culture. Perhaps that's why, in 1807, when he was about 15 years old, he swam out into Honolulu Harbor and tried his luck on a ship that was moored there. He later told a biographer, About this time there was a ship, the Triumph, come from New York, Captain Brentnall, the master of the ship. As soon as it got into the harbor, in the very place where I lived, I thought of no more but to take the best chance I had, and if the captain have no objection, to take me as one of his own servants and to obey his word. After supper, the captain made some inquiry to see if we were willing to come to America. And soon I made a motion with my head that I was willing to go. This man was very agreeable, and his kindness was much delighted in my heart, as if I was his own son, and he was my own father. Thus, I still continue thankful for his kindness toward me. Another native Hawaiian teenager named Hopu also enlisted for the voyage. The Triumph had traveled from the U.S. East Coast to the coast of Oregon, which was claimed by Britain, Russia, France, and the U.S. There, they purchased valuable furs from the indigenous tribes which they would take to China, which already had a well-established fur trade. The intermediate stop in the Hawaiian Islands was relatively new, but it would allow Captain Caleb Brittnell of New Haven to augment his cargo with sandalwood and pick up new crew members. It was also a crucial replenishment stop in the middle of the Pacific, far from any other port. Traders like Brittnell, and soon thereafter whalers from New England and elsewhere, would come to cherish their layovers in an island chain where they could stock up on freshwater and provisions, and where their crews could be entertained with plentiful booze and prostitution. An article about trade between Boston and Hawaii by S.E. Morrison gives an outline of what a typical trading voyage of that era would have looked like. A typical voyage is that of the ship Pearl, captained by John Souter, owned by James and Thomas Lamb, James and Thomas H. Perkins, and Russell Sturgis, all of Boston. She sailed thence on July 23, 1807. On January 13, 1808, she anchored at the Sandwich Islands and procured fresh provisions. The next 20 months, from February 1808 to October 1809, were spent along the northwest coast, procuring beaver and sea otter skins. Thence to the islands, stopping a few days in late October and taking on provisions and wood. 
Arrived in China December 5th. Sailed March 11th, 1810. In company with Theodore Lyman's ship Vancouver. The two vessels sailing up Boston Harbor almost abreast on August 4th, 1810. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll recognize a lot of those names from episode 89, when we interviewed Stephen Ujafusa about his book Barons of the Sea. Boston merchants dominated the early China trade using Boston-built clipper ships, so it shouldn't be a surprise that the same families also dominated the early trade with the Hawaiian Islands. For Hopu and Opukahaia, the two-year voyage from Hawaii to China and then back to New England must have seemed never-ending. En route, they had to not only learn how to be sailors, but also how to speak English. After they finally arrived in Connecticut in the fall of 1809, an 1816 biographical sketch says, On their arrival in this country, Obukia, which is how Americans tended to pronounce his name, received the additional name of Henry, and Hopu, that of Thomas. Opukahaia was taken into the family of Captain Britnell, and for Hopu, a suitable place was found in the neighborhood both of them expecting to return to their native island by the first favorable opportunity. That quick return was not to be. Sometime during their journey, a Yale graduate named Hubbard had begun teaching Henry Opukahaia to read and write in English. And now that he found himself in a college town, Henry was eager to continue his education, as the sketch continues. After his arrival in New Haven, while residing with the family of Captain Britnell, he used frequently to visit the colleges in that place. At the door of one of the colleges, he was found one evening weeping. On being asked the cause of his tears, he replied that nobody gave him learning. Several of the students, having learned who he was and where he lived, and having obtained the consent of Captain Brittnell, agreed to instruct him, and accordingly received him under their care. Opukahaia was a quick study. The profile says that as he learned to speak English, he learned to read it just as quickly. Within a few months, he was reading Bible verses, and in four years, he went off to the public school in Litchfield. By 1815, he'd studied English, geography, arithmetic, and was teaching himself Hebrew. One of his tutors wrote, As to Henry Obukia, he is certainly promising. He is possessed of an amiable disposition and talents capable of being useful. He has a quick apprehension and good memory, and considering all the disadvantages under which he labors from early habits, and from the fact that he studies in a strange language, I think his improvement more than ordinary. That year, he formally converted to Christianity, expressing a desire to return to his native island and spread the gospel there. To that end, he started working on an alphabet and grammar to create a written version of the Hawaiian language. In 1816, he was recruited into the inaugural class of the Foreign Mission School in Cornwall, Connecticut. It had been founded by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, which was based out of Park Street Church in Boston. Morrison's 1921 paper about the links between Boston and Hawaii traces the board's early focus on the so-called Sandwich Islands to a sailor on the first American ship to circumnavigate the globe. Probably the first American vessel to touch at Hawaii was the famous Columbia of Boston, captained by Robert Gray 
on August 24, 1789, in the course of her first voyage around the world. She remained 24 days at the islands, salted down five puncheons of pork, and sailed with 155 live hogs on deck. A young native called Atu, who shipped there as an ordinary seaman, attracted much attention at Boston on the Columbia's return by his gorgeous feather cloak and helmet. Atu was the first of several young Hawaiians who, arriving in New England as seamen on merchant vessels, influenced the American Board of Foreign Missions to found the mission school. Cornwall was chosen as the location for the school because the religious fervor of the surrounding community made it an excellent area for fundraising. The school had the stated mission of the education in our own country of heathen youths in such manner as, with subsequent professional instruction, will qualify them to become useful missionaries, physicians, surgeons, schoolmasters, or interpreters and to communicate to the heathen nations such knowledge in agriculture and the arts as may prove the means of promoting Christianity and civilization. The first class at the mission school was made up of 12 students, of whom seven were native Hawaiians. Henry Opukahaia helped recruit many of them, including a hereditary prince of the island of Kauai, who was about Opukahaia's age. Known to white Americans as George Prince, he had been born Humehume and had been sent off to sea at a young age. Eventually ending up in the United States, he enlisted in the Marine Corps, served on the USS Wasp during the War of 1812, and was discharged after being wounded in action. He soon re-enlisted with the U.S. Navy, serving during the First Barbary War. Opukahaia and the school aggressively recruited him, as his military record would help burnish the reputation of the mission school. The rest of the inaugural class was rounded out by two white Americans, a Bengali, a Hindu, and a Native American who might have been Cherokee or Choctaw, the two nations most heavily represented at the school throughout the years. Before Henry Opukahaia could complete his written Hawaiian grammar, And before he could return to the nation of his birth as a missionary, he died of yellow fever in Cornwall on February 17, 1818. A world away and 15 months later, the death of Kamehameha the Great would lead to a period of upheaval in Hawaiian culture that, unbeknownst to the Hawaiians, helped pave the way for the New England missionaries who would soon find their way to the islands. The king's eldest son assumed the throne as Kamehameha II but he would share power with his stepmother. Ka'ahumanu was his father's favorite wife and a member of the traditional royal family of Maui. Keeping her in power helped bind Maui and the other islands to Hawaii after the great king's death. The new king also used trade policy to help maintain power. While his father had ordered a cautious and conservation-minded approach to the sandalwood trade, the son lifted almost all restrictions. This ensured that local chieftains throughout the islands would get a taste of the trade, as described in a 1938 book about the Hawaiian kingdom by Ralph S. Koikendal. The wide-open market in Hawaii therefore proved an irresistible attraction to the New England traders. They descended upon the islands in a swarm, bringing with them everything from pens, scissors, clothing and kitchen utensils, to carriages, billiard tables, house frames, and sailing ships. 
and doing their utmost to keep the speculating spirit at fever heat among the Hawaiian chiefs. And the chiefs were not slow about buying. If they had no sandalwood at hand to pay for their goods, they gave promissory notes. Even after sandalwood had become scarce, they still kept buying, led on by a species of salesmanship at which these Yankee traders were adept. In part to emphasize a sense of unity with the other islands, Kamehameha II moved the kingdom's capital to the town of Lahaina, on Maui, in 1820. There, he and Ka'ahumanu moved into what had been the royal residence of Maui, before unification. Though Lahaina was located in a desert in the island's rain shadow, a complex system of canals carried fresh water out of the mountains to fill a 17-acre fish pond, just feet from the waterfront. In the middle of this pond was a one-acre man-made island called Moku'ula, where the royal palace complex stood. From this island, Ka'ahumanu would challenge beliefs at the very heart of traditional Hawaiian religion and customs. At the time, the Hawaiian culture was rigidly hierarchical. People were divided into strict castes that were impossible to transcend and could never mix in public. These human castes corresponded with a rigid hierarchy within the pantheon of gods and deities. Religious practices also required strict separation on gender lines, with women forbidden from eating meals alongside men, from eating many common foods like banana and pork, and from any participation in any mixed-gender context while menstruating. For Ka'ahumanu, these restrictions were a barrier to her participation as a full partner in the Young King's Regency. Together with Kamehameha II's wives, she started a campaign of co-eating. Through the simple act of eating at the table with the king, the queen regent could both participate more fully in politics and also challenge the ancient hierarchies. According to religious law, this act should have led to a death sentence, but the young king couldn't make himself execute his beloved stepmother and co-monarch. The high priests also refused to step in, making it clear to the people that the old mores would no longer be enforced. This launched a period of extreme religious and cultural upheaval in the Hawaiian Islands. Temples were torn down and idols were burned, while the traditional hierarchies evaporated, leaving each family to decide for itself whether to continue worshipping the old gods. So as 1820 dawned, a new king had moved into a new capital city. The old gods had fallen, and Boston merchants were draining the islands dry of natural resources. This year of extreme transition was far from over, though. S.E. Morrison's 1921 paper notes, Another event which made the year 1820 memorable in Hawaiian economic history was the arrival of the first Massachusetts whaling vessel, the ship Marrow of Nantucket. Nantucket whalers had rounded the horn as early as 1791, but until this year, their activities had been confined mainly to the South Pacific. Captain Allen's discovery of the Japanese whaling grounds made Hawaii as essential to whalers as to China traders. Within just a few years, the shallow anchorage before Lahaina would be transformed into a forest of masts. In the show notes this week, I'll include a depiction of Lahaina in the early 1840s by a pair of painters who embarked on a whaling voyage around the world a few years earlier. There are dozens of ships on the water, the royal palace at Moku'ula is visible on one side, 
and in the middle is a whitewashed fortress built of coral blocks, which was erected after a dispute between locals and whalers resulted in a whaling ship opening fire on the town with cannons in 1827. Another catalyst of change would arrive in Hawaiian waters on March 31, 1820. In his 1848 memoir, Congregational Missionary Hiram Bingham described his first glimpse of Native Hawaiians soon after making landfall. Their maneuvers in their canoes, some being propelled by short paddles and some by small sails, attracted the attention of our little group, and for a moment gratified curiosity. But the appearance of destitution, degradation, and barbarism among the chattering and almost naked savages, whose heads and feet and much of their sunburnt swarthy skins were bare, was appalling. Some of our number, with gushing tears, turned away from the spectacle. Others, with firmer nerve, continued their gaze, but were ready to exclaim, Can these be human beings? How dark and comfortless their state of mind and heart! How imminent the danger to the immortal soul shrouded in this deep pagan gloom! Can such beings be civilized? Can they be Christianized? Can we throw ourselves upon these rude shores and take up our abode for life among such a people for the purpose of training them for heaven? Bingham was one of the two ordained ministers in the first group of Boston Congregationalists to arrive in Hawaii. The book by Koikendal describes the makeup of this group. The first company of missionaries included two ordained ministers, Rev. Hiram Bingham and Rev. Asa Thurston, a physician, Dr. Thomas Holman, two schoolmasters and catechists, Samuel Whitney and Samuel Ruggles, a printer, Elisha Loomis, a farmer, Daniel Chamberlain, their wives, and three Hawaiian youths have been attending the foreign mission school at Cornwall, Connecticut. These 17 persons constituted the original Hawaiian church, whose membership was increased by later additions. Accompanying them on the voyage to Hawaii were five children of the Chamberlain family and a young Hawaiian chief, George Prince Kaumualii, son of the King of Kauai. This prince had been a sailor in the American Navy and later a student at the Foreign Mission School, where he made an excellent record as a student, but gave no very satisfactory evidence of being a Christian. This so-called pioneer company of missionaries had departed Boston 163 days earlier, just a few days after Bingham and Thurston got ordained, and almost immediately after a solemn ceremony at the Park Street Church on October 15, 1819. On that day, all the members of the Pioneer Company gathered together, including wives and children. They sang hymns, listened to sermons by several fellow missionaries, including the native Hawaiian Hopu, and they were formally organized into a church for transplantation that was charged with spreading the gospel to Hawaii. In a book about gender and the Hawaiian missionaries, Jennifer Thigpen wrote, on a fall day in 1819, Mercy Whitney gathered with her new mission family at Boston Harbor in preparation for a journey to the Hawaiian Islands. Mercy was young, just 26, and recently married. In the preceding weeks, Mercy had surprised her family by agreeing not only to wed Samuel Whitney, a virtual stranger, but also to accompany him on a mission to the Pacific for a term of no less than 20 years. Mercy and Samuel were not alone in taking such a leap of faith. Of the seven missionary couples preparing to board the brig Thaddeus, six had married in preparation for their journey. 
the mission's governing board, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, had clearly articulated its marital requirement. Missionary hopefuls like Samuel understood that if they were unmarried, they simply would not be assigned to the field. Similarly, women understood that they would only be allowed to participate in the growing foreign mission movement as wives and helpmeets to full-fledged male missionaries. For the small crowd gathered to see the group off, the mood surely must have been mixed. Coupled with the dangers associated with a months-long sea voyage and the long-term of mission service, it was possible, even likely, that the group would never be reunited with their families and friends. Essie Morrison's paper describes their departure from Boston a week later. On Saturday morning, October 23rd, the final farewell took place at Long Wharf, crowded with sympathetic spectators. The Reverend Dr. Worcester offered up a prayer, Hopu delivered another speech, and all united in singing, Blessed be the tie that binds, and when shall we all meet again? A barge from the USS Independence conveyed the missionaries to the vessel chartered for the voyage by the American board, the Brig Thaddeus of Boston, which in just a short time weighed anchor and dropped down the stream to Boston Light. As you might gather from the narrative of the first contacts between Hiram Bingham's missionary company and the court of Kamehameha, the missionaries expected the absolute worst when they arrived in Hawaii, and they were perhaps disappointed not to find it. Rufus Anderson's 1870 History of the Sandwich Islands mission provides an example of what the American missionaries expected to find. The missionaries had expected to find the old king Kamehameha ruling the islands with despotic power and zealously upholding idolatry. They expected to see the temples standing, to witness the baleful effects of idolatrous rites, to be shocked by day with the sight of human sacrifices and alarmed at night by the outcries of devoted victims. They expected to encounter a long and dangerous opposition from the powerful priesthood of paganism. They expected to hear the yells of savage warfare and to witness bloody battles before idolatry would be overthrown and the peaceful religion of Jesus Christ established. No anticipations were more reasonable, yet not one of them was realized. Their first information from the shore was that Kamehameha was dead and that his successor had renounced the national superstitions, destroyed the idols, burned the temples, abolished the priesthood, put an end to human sacrifices, and suppressed a rebellion which arose in consequence of these measures, and that peace once more prevailed and the nation without a religion was waiting for the law of Jehovah. Even though the new king had upended the old traditions, there were still plenty of signs of the old religion when the pioneer company of missionaries arrived. For example, Hiram Bingham took the time to view a heiau, or temple, on his first day in Hawaii. He described it as a monument of folly, superstition, and madness, which the idolatrous conqueror and his murderous priests had consecrated with human blood to the senseless deities of pagan Hawaii. As a fortification of Satan's kingdom, its design was more for war against the human species than the worship of the Creator. About half of the first party of missionaries settled at a mission at Kailua on the Big Island of Hawaii. When Bingham arrived at Kailua a few days after making landfall, he described the reception he received. 
As we proceeded to the shore, the multitudinous shouting and almost naked natives of every age, sex, and rank, swimming, floating on surfboards, sailing in canoes, sitting, lounging, standing, running like sheep, dancing or laboring on shore, attracted our earnest attention and exhibited the appalling darkness of the land which we had come to enlighten. The other half of the initial missionaries were split between the Big Island, Oahu, and Kauai. Though they established at least four churches, and though the Hawaiian crown would adopt Christianity as the official state religion, the first mission was broadly considered a failure. Perhaps racist attitudes toward the indigenous people and their cultural practices had something to do with it. The missionaries thought that the locals would be dazzled by the western dress and demeanor of the three Hawaiian members of the party, but the locals were mostly nonplussed. An official history of the mission school says that those who had returned to their native lands failed to meet the expectations of their friends. Perhaps the locals saw just another westerner who happened to have darker skin. Racist assumptions about what work should look like also sabotaged the missionaries' efforts. The Hawaiians were expert hunters and master mariners, and they cultivated breadfruit, banana, taro, and other staple crops. But because their labor didn't look like the typical New England farm, the missionaries believed that the locals needed instruction on how to feed themselves on their own land. This did not work out as well as intended, as Rufus Anderson recorded in 1870. Another error naturally committed in the necessary absence of experience so near the outset of this enterprise was the comparative estimate put on mere civilizing agencies, hence the sending of a farmer as part of the mission to the islands. It was supposed that the natives would at once profit by improvements in tillage such as an American farmer would be able to introduce, but the facts did not correspond with those anticipations, and the farmer returned after three years. Kamehameha II had his own concerns about the arrival of the missionaries. He was reportedly skeptical when he heard that the American men took only one wife apiece. He was also worried about upsetting the balance of power between the British, Russian, American, and other merchants who were operating in the islands. Eventually, however, he was prevailed upon by his mother, Queen Keopuulani, his stepmother and co-regent Ka'ahumanu, and a high priest named Hewa Hewa to let the newcomer stay. Unlike the missionary Mercy Whitney, who was pledged to be a helpmeet to her new missionary husband, Ka'ahumanu saw the arrival of these Christians as a new avenue to power. While their efforts at direct conversion through the example posed by their three Hawaiian missionaries failed, as did the experiment in New England-style farming, the missionaries were soon successful at building ties with the chiefly class in the islands. Ralph Koikendall's History of the Hawaiian Kingdom describes the early success. From the beginning, the chiefs were friendly to the missionaries. For the first few years, indeed, they practically monopolized the efforts of the new teachers. The latter have sometimes been criticized for giving so much attention to the chiefs. In reality, they had no choice in the matter and if they could not win the chiefs, they had little chance of success with the common people. Visitors to the islands in 1822 remarked that all seemed to hang on the word of the king. He said that by and by he would tell his people that they must all learn the good word and worship Jehovah, 
but that the missionaries must teach him first, and themselves get well acquainted with Hawaiian. They had a head start in getting acquainted with Hawaiian. Not only did Thomas Hopu, William Kanui, and John Honolii have native fluency with the language, but a British missionary came to work with them for about a year and a half. Reverend William Ellis had spent years in Tahiti and learned the local language. In Hawaii, he discovered that he quickly picked up Hawaiian and was able to preach to the locals in their own language. Also among the first party were Samuel Ruggles, a classmate of Henry Opukahaia who continued working on Henry's Hawaiian grammar after his death, and Asa Thurston, who would single-handedly translate 14 books of the Bible into Hawaiian. Quickendall's history continues. Before the missionaries were well settled in their thatched houses, built for them by the king at Honolulu, they gathered some of the people into a school. The same thing was done at Kailua and Waimea. In these little schools, English was taught. It was obvious, however, that while it was desirable for the king and chiefs and their business agents to know English, teaching such a difficult language to the people as a whole would require an immense expenditure of time and effort. If the Hawaiians were to be made literate in a reasonable period, it must be in their own language. If the work of the missionaries was to be effective, it must be carried on in the native tongue. Their first task was to learn the language and to reduce it to written form. Within two years, enough translation was done to start pressing Elisha Loomis's print shop into service. A 1962 article in the Journal of the American Society of Church History describes the moment when the first Hawaiian language printing was struck. On Monday, January 7, 1822, in the presence of a gathering of missionaries, chiefs, and foreign residents, Chief Keiaomoku assisted in taking the first impression of printed matter to come from the press in the Hawaiian Islands. This spelling primer, the first so-called book, was only a broadside, six by four inches, headed Lesson 1, containing the alphabet and some short lessons in spelling and reading which later appeared on the second and third pages of the completed text. Before the end of the month, an elementary spelling book of 16 pages was printed in an edition of 500 copies. King Kamehameha II, Ka'ahumanu, Boki, and other chiefs and numbers of people came to the printing establishment in Honolulu to gaze in awe at the new machine that could turn out palapala, or the written word, on blank sheets of paper. From this point onward, the missionaries would use educational texts and gospel tracts just as fast as the press could print them. As the initial failure of the mission began to turn around, the Pioneer Company was joined by a second party of missionaries, which had sailed out of New Haven and arrived in Hawaii in April of 1823. This group would be split among the Big Island, Oahu, and for the first time, Maui a group including William and Clarissa Richards, Charles and Harriet Stewart, and Betsy Stockton were stationed in Lahaina starting in May of that year, where Betsy Stockton would be praised for the success of the school she founded, the first mission school in Lahaina, and the first in the Hawaiian Islands that enrolled the children of commoners and not just the chiefly class. Betsy was also notable because she had been enslaved at birth and only manumitted five years before she volunteered as a missionary. This second company may have sailed from New Haven, but more of its members were from Boston than had been in the first company that had sailed from Boston. 
With their arrival in Lahaina, that town became crowded with Boston merchants, whalers, and missionaries, all of whom were right on the doorstep of the royal complex at Mokoula. S.E. Morrison described the Booyah base of competing New England influences. As early as 1823, there were four mercantile houses in the islands. Honowell's, Jones's, Northwest John DeWolf's, and another from New York. The little community of respectable traders and missionaries, with a disreputable fringe of deserters from and whalers, was so predominantly Bostonian that Boston acquired the same connotation in Hawaii as along the northwest coast. It stood for the whole United States. Hawaii had, in fact, become an outpost of New England. The foreign settlement, with its frame houses shipped around the horn, haircloth furniture, orthodox meeting house built of coral blocks and New England Sabbath, was as Yankee as a suburb of Boston. That year, William and Clarissa Richards erected the Wyola Church immediately abutting the royal complex. When Nikki and I visited, it was a perfectly clear and sunny day, and the manicured cemetery and churchyard fairly gleamed within the enclosing lava stone walls. We wandered among the graves and noted veterans of both world wars, as well as headstones with surnames indicating families of Hawaiian, North American, Filipino, and Chinese descent. Immediately facing the church building, a small wrought-iron enclosure denotes the royal grave of Queen Keopuolani. In 1823, she was one of the many wives of Maui Governor Hoapili, but she announced that from that point onward, Hawaiian royalty would adopt the strange Christian custom of monogamy. So she became his only wife. Unfortunately, she became gravely ill that August, and soon lay on her deathbed. In the weeks before her September death, she asked to be baptized and to be buried in the Christian custom. Keopuulani's public embrace of Christianity helped accelerate the religion's acceptance among the Hawaiian people. A year and six days after her death, her fellow queen called a public meeting in Lahaina on September 24, 1824. Koikendal describes the meeting. Ka'ahumanu called forward three young men belonging to her private school, informed us that she had appointed them teachers for her people on the windward side of Maui, and desired that they might be supplied with books sufficient for large schools. She then addressed herself to the headmen of that district who were present, commanding them to have good schoolhouses erected immediately, and to order all the people in her name to attend to the palapala and the pule, or education and worship. She didn't yet know it when she ordered this additional religious education for the island of Maui, but Ka'ahumanu's son and king was already dead. Kamehameha II and his wife Kamamalu were on a state visit to Great Britain when they both died of measles in July of 1824. His younger brother would take the throne as Kamehameha III, but the new king was just 12 years old, investing the dowager queen Ka'ahumanu with ever more power. In part, she used her influence to promote Christianity, and specifically Protestant Congregationalism. She was publicly baptized in 1824, and she soon gave her stamp of approval to the kingdom's first written body of laws, based on biblical values. Within the next few years, she would outlaw Catholicism and banish priests from the kingdom. She would sign the kingdom's first foreign treaty, 
a free trade agreement with the U.S., and she would ban liquor and prostitution in Lahaina. This last order led to a violent pushback by the New England whalers who had become accustomed to procuring not only pork, bananas, and fresh water, but also booze and women in Lahaina. In October 1827, a small group of women went on board the English whale ship John Palmer, which was under the command of an American captain. Hoapili demanded that the women be returned to shore, and the crew of the Palmer refused. Things escalated until Hoapili took the captain hostage, and the ship's mate ordered his men to load their cannons. Hiram Bingham recalled, The ship commenced firing cannonballs, which, by their horrifying sound as they passed near us, and by their plowing the ground behind us, and the relative position of the ship, the house, and the striking of the balls, appeared with little room for doubt to have been aimed at the house of Mr. Richards. The captain was eventually returned, the women weren't, and everything went back to square one. To protect against future misunderstandings, a large coral block fortress was built in downtown Lahaina, which is visible on the 1848 panoramic painting I mentioned before. The other landmark that's visible in that painting is the Lahaina Luna Seminary. In 1828, the third company of missionaries came on the ship Parthian from Boston. They sailed from Boston, but this group was from a wide swath of the country, including members from Kentucky, Vermont, New Jersey, New York, Missouri, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. One of the Kentuckians, Lauren Andrews, was tasked with starting a seminary. Now that the Hawaiians had a few years of literacy and religious instruction under their belts, the church believed that they were ready to start training as clergy themselves. Considered the first American college west of the Rockies, Lahaina Luna is just a high school today. Standing high on a hill above downtown Lahaina, the campus has changed little since the 19th century, including Hale Pai, the printing house. In 1834, Elisha Loomis's old press was moved from Honolulu to Lahaina, and the students started printing the first Hawaiian newspaper. By 1837, they were cranking out 18 million printed pages per year. Park Street Church and the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions would send nine more companies of missionaries over the next 20 years. Over the 12 companies that were sent by 1848, Seven were sent directly from Boston. All were operating under the auspices of Park Street, and most included members from Boston. A fair number of missionaries returned home after a handful of years, or moved on to other missionary work in South America, Asia, or even among the indigenous nations of the American West. But some stayed on for 10, 20, or 50 years. Hiram Bingham would live in the islands for 21 years. The Congregational Missionaries from Park Street went to civilize Hawaii almost 200 years after their Puritan ancestors went to civilize the Massachusetts people. In both cases, the indigenous culture had already been weakened. In the case of colonial Massachusetts, by the Great Plague that had decimated native villages a few years before. And in the case of Hawaii, by the religious upheaval that had preceded the arrival of the missionaries. The outcome for the Hawaiians was very nearly as disastrous as it was for the Massachusetts, Wampanoag, and Nipmuc, who had called the Massachusetts Bay home prior to 1630. 
In many cases, the children of missionaries were among the planters who implemented a brutal, nearly feudal plantation system in Hawaii, forcing most native Hawaiians to work in sugarcane fields or pineapple farms on their ancestral homelands for starvation wages. The grandchildren of the missionaries became the imperialists who forced King David Kalakaua to sign the 1887 Bayonet Constitution that stripped Hawaiians of their right to self-government and turned over most political power to the white planters. It only seems appropriate that when the U.S. Marines came ashore in 1893 to back a coup that deposed and imprisoned Queen Liliuokalani, ended Hawaiian royal rule, and forced annexation to the United States, those Marines were carried aboard the USS Boston. However, the tragic history of the missionary system in the Hawaiian Islands does not translate to a disdain for the churches that remain there today. Wherever I traveled on Maui, the congregational churches in tiny towns and rural enclaves were meticulously maintained. The proof is in the evident care given to the Lava Stone Kaianai Church, embraced between taro fields and coconut palms on a windswept peninsula, or the Palapala Ho'omau Church, where Charles Lindbergh's buried wrapped in a colorful tropical garden atop a cliff, or the tidy church at the end of the winding road to the tiny village of Nahiku. The proof is also in the church histories, which proudly note that the congregations refused to deed their church buildings and land over to the missionary society back in Boston when they were asked to in the 1860s. The religious tradition planted by these missionaries was celebrated at Park Street Church on the 200th anniversary of the Pioneer Company. In October 2019, about 100 church members, descendants of missionaries, and historic interpreters from the Hawaiian Islands traveled on a commemorative tour of New England. They started in New Haven, traveled through the Connecticut Valley where the mission school had been hosted, and they wound up in Boston on Sunday, October 20th. 200 years and one day after the Mission Church had been gathered at Park Street, the Hawaiians attended morning services at Park Street Church. One of them wrote in a travel log, The service was a beautiful blend of Hawaiian language and English. There was a huge contingent of people from Hawaii. The inside of the church is so contemporary that I had to actually make myself stop and remember that this is where the commissioning happened 200 years ago. What might it have felt like? Cold, damp, joyful, not likely to have been filled with flags from around the world like it was today. What did those who were about to set out feel like on the inside, and what face might they have put on for others to see? One of the many highlights here was a Thurston descendant sister from the East Coast meeting a Thurston descendant sister from Hawaii for the first time. This was in the same church where their shared great, many times over great, grandmother and grandfather set out 200 years ago. To learn more about Boston's missionaries to Hawaii, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 220. Take a look at my pictures of congregational churches on Maui and see whether you think those missionaries were going into the gates of hell. I'll also link to the memoirs, journal articles, and other sources I quoted from this week. There will also be a book of portraits of the missionaries, so you can put faces with many of the names mentioned in the episode. Before I let you go, I have listener feedback to share. First up is an email I got from a new sponsor. 
I've been a regular listener for about a year, and I'm pleased to make a small donation to support Hub History. I'm a native to the area, having spent my whole life here on the North Shore. And I'm fascinated by all the stories that never made it into the history books. And I'm fascinated by all the stories that never made it into the history books. Keep up the good work, Doug. Thanks for that, Doug. You nailed what we're trying to achieve with this show, highlighting the lesser-known aspects of history that we didn't learn about in school. And speaking of things we didn't learn about in school, Kurt responded on Twitter after listening to our show about Nazi sympathizers and anti-Semitic violence in Boston during World War II. I wonder if the Rabbi Korf thanked in the survey of news suppression was the same one who later became famous for supporting Richard Nixon. I have no idea, but that'd be amazing if true. And finally, we got an email from a listener named Joe. Joe's a firefighter who added a few details to recent episodes and who had a family connection to one of our shows from the distant past. I love your show. There's always so much awesome information to be had listening to you. Just listen to Bussy Street. I work at the firehouse up the street from Forest Hills and have always been fascinated by the stone train bridge and the path alongside the Arboretum. It was so cool, and sad, to hear about what it used to be. I also recently listened to your Bells and Whistles episode where you talked about party lines. The Boston Fire Department still uses a similar one-ring, two-ring format to delineate a call from a city phone versus a private line. One solid ring means it's coming from the city. Fire alarm, firehouse to firehouse, etc. And a quick two-ring sequence means that it's from a private phone number who called direct to that firehouse. Also, I got a real kick out of your episode about the Coconut Grove fire. When you mentioned the firefighters who entered the building, one of them happens to be my grandfather. Unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of meeting him since he died in the 60s but it does give me a quick glimpse into the life of an amazing man I never got to know. Thanks for all you do, Joe. Thanks for the lovely note, Joe. I bet your grandfather had a heck of a lot of stories to tell. I wish I could have heard some of them. We love getting listener feedback, whether you have a personal family connection to the episode or just want to tell us you enjoyed it. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we missed. If you'd like to leave us some feedback on this episode or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 